Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. Good. A. U. Recorded live. American Underground Network. The primary reason why the individual citizens of a country create a political structure is a subconscious wish or desire to perpetuate their own dependency relationship of childhood. Simply put, they want a human God to eliminate all risk from their life, pat them on the head, kiss their bruises, put a chicken on every dinner table, clothe their bodies, tuck them into bed at night, and tell them that everything will be all right when they wake up in the morning. This public demand is incredible, so the human God the politician meets incredibility with incredibility by promising the world and delivering nothing. So who is the bigger lie, the public or the godfather? All revolutions have been led by young people. If you just think of the TV images of whether it's Tiananmen Square or whether it's the uh, revolts in Central America or Europe, the young people, it's the college people who are more principled and not locked in and they're not embedded with the government. They are the ones who are concerned about the future because the future is theirs. My research has shown at this point that the future laid out for us may be just about impossible to change. I do not agree with the means by which the powerful few have chosen for us to reach the end. I do not agree that the end is where we should end at all. But unless we can wake the people from their sleep, nothing short of civil war will stop the planned outcome. It's the National Collective Consciousness Show with Dee Dee Farrell in Portland, Oregon, Jim Condit Jr. in Cincinnati, Ohio, Steve Harris in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, live from Evanston, Illinois, your host, Fred Smart. Hey, thank you, everyone. Happy New Year to everyone. It's been about uh, a little over three weeks since we last had our, our official call before Christmas. Uh, great to be back. And uh, for another year, we're closing in on our eighth anniversary of this call. Every Thursday night we've been doing this. Uh, I have on a three-way Patrick Riot, our guest for tonight's call, with me. And uh, for those of you who may not have heard of Patrick Riot, he's one of the most sought-after guest on this call over the last several years. He's appeared several times, at least five times or more, and uh, we are going to be having him on to discuss and bring us up to date on some geopolitical, economic, financial matters as they relate to war, peace, uh, the global economies, the collapsing oil price, what's behind it, and everything else. But before we get to Patrick, Uh, Melinda Kula, who's been a guest a couple of times on our call, is just going to segue in for a little brief update. Melinda, thank you for coming back. And just about if you could encapsulate it in a short period of time, we are trying to get Melinda here to Chicago. She and her husband 
to lay down a couple of uh, shows at Public Cable Access TV that we can put in the can involving the evidence on the Joan Benet Ramsey murder case as well as her uh, the murder case of her parents here in Illinois. So, Melinda, go ahead, and then we'll segue really quickly to Patrick Grant. Absolutely, and thank you very, very much. But I was so excited about this update information. There is a Facebook, and it is run by the John Benet Investigation Team. So mm-hmm. all you need to do is Google Facebook John Benet Investigation. Hello. They received the auto file link dated November 6th on your show. Okay. They had they had it for several weeks. Chris. The team dissected it. And they saw it fit to put it in the Oh, hey, hang on. Uh, Pat, Patrick, uh, you're, you're, we're just doing a really quick 30-second or one-minute update from Melinda, and it's going to be just – that's it. And, and, then you, you, and then you have the floor for the rest of the call. I, I, you weren't listening oh, no. when I did the introduction. No, that Sorry. That, was, that wasn't me, Fred. Oh, it wasn't. Oh. <laughs> oh, who's yelling out for Fred? Who was that? Who was that in the background? Huh. Well, I think no, we need well, to mute that person, Didi. Yeah, wow, I, I, sound I, like I Jim Palmasana. Oh, it was Dave Sudaka <laughs> from Chicago. Okay, go ahead. I'm gonna mute okay. you, Dave, because okay, go ahead. Yep. Okay, once once again, it's exciting news. It's very exciting news. Facebook John Bonet Investigation has featured on the front of their page, center front of their page, the John Bonet uh, auto file link dated November 6th on your show. Oh, I great. Oh, I'm so excited because what that means is they not only see the truth in the information and the importance of the information, but everyone across the country who is participating with them, and you have scientists and you have investigators with what happened to John Bonet, they are able to listen to the archive that you graced us with. Well, terrific. That's great news. Now, one more thing. They are looking for a photocopy, anything, and you already have it, and so do I, of what Bill Ramsey looks like. They have a character in mind. They're wondering if they're two of the same, one of the same. So they have asked me to take a picture and send it to them so that they can actually post it on a particular site. I'm making arrangements to do that by Monday. The other thing is they're very interested in finding for themselves a photo of a wooden karate training sword because that is the only weapon that could cause an eight-and-a-half-inch-long V-shaped indentation. As a matter of fact, for the trip to Illinois, I have one. I'm going to bring it. Okay, that's the one. And, we, and don't, don't, go, don't talk about that. We don't want that to kind of get out, because that's very inf- confidential information, <laughs> Melinda. Because right, you can't John lose Bonet. that. You can't lose that, okay? I got it. <laughs> the Facebook John Bonet Investigation... If you just okay. go there, you cool. will see your own archive there being featured, and that's great news. Very cool. Thank you, Melinda. I will be calling you this week later on, okay? Absolutely. God bless really appreciate the update. And uh, hang on and listen to our guest tonight. Uh, Pat yes. Riot, everyone, is back with us for the new year to lay out a whole bunch of new information and old information that connects to this. But uh, I called him up earlier this week, and I just – Pose the question of what what is causing the price of oil to collapse? The ruble has been under attack. The ruble has declined 50 plus percent. I don't know if anyone realizes that in the last month 
uh, huge economic uh, changes, political changes, geopolitical in nature are happening. And it is, uh, as Patrick will lay out tonight, part of an ongoing war or warrior strategy uh, that's being deployed all over planet Earth, and uh, we are all involved in, in this strategy. Uh, it's all pointed directly at us. We have a target on our backs, on our heads. And uh, so, Pat, thank you for coming on. What did Putin, uh, Vladimir Putin, earlier or last year announce something very critical that enraged the powers that be? Could you if you could just start from that point, because that's a very riveting point that I think everyone needs to understand, and then uh, connect the dots back to that at the end of the call, because uh, uh, we're really in some interesting times right now. Thanks for coming on the call again, Pat. Well, thanks a lot, Fred. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, thanks for the audience. I, I don't know how large your audience is. One of these days, I'll I'll get to figure that out. Um, I, uh, in fact, I, I wonder uh, why you actually don't do a radio show, per se, instead of the phone show or the phone uh, presentation and uh, get this out on some type of, uh, I guess they call it blog radio or whatever. It well, is. it is. We, we do archive this and, and, and stream live on TalkShoe so people on the Internet can listen to this live, and they are right now. So they, Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's just not it's not radio um, per se in terms of FM, AM or something like that. Gotcha. Um, well, you set me you set me up, and you set me into a point in history that it's kind of difficult to uh, go to. I mean, it's an extremely important time because of what's happening relative to the ruble, the dollar, oil prices and what's going on in the United States. But it really began so much earlier, um, and it takes us back in time to before the the beginning of the 20th century. The, I made some notes this morning before I left off for work, and um, I think what I'd like to do is begin this with a few thoughts, and then I'll cut into... We'll get into talking about the Russian ruble and, and what you've asked me about, what happened back in uh, the past 12 months in Russia, actually less than 12 months. Um, we All of us live our lives, and we live our lives in our own circle. Uh, we're, we're somewhat specks of history, and some of us will reach out and think about greater things and larger issues that take place around us, but very rarely, because we're all running to and fro or supporting our lives and our families. And it's difficult to start thinking in circles that are much larger than the one we live in on a day-to-day basis. Uh, We come and go believing that we're the center of our own lives and the future of our lives, but we never really understand the larger picture. Uh, Your question about what's going on uh, with regards to the uh, price of oil and such is, is a very, very good question to begin with. We're all manipulated by unseen forces. And when I got into this subject back about eight to ten years ago, when we met, we were talking about taxes and where the income tax come from and why so many people are all upset about an income tax that theoretically or reality by law should not be collected. That was the surface of the, the subject matter where I entered the, the uh, my interest entered this uh, situation. Um, 
tonight for the first time, I'm going to try, I'm going to pro- try to provide a glimpse um, of those forces that we are all manipulated by. They're unseen forces, and how we unwittingly interact with them, doing essentially for our enemies what they could never do alone. But they're unseen enemies. We've been and we continue to be manipulated no different than a rancher herds his cattle until it's time to go to market. It's it's kind of it's with this metaphor that my information this evening begins. It's provocative information and it'll upset some and challenge everyone. In that spirit, let's name tonight's discussion We Are the Cattle. Cattle is a word that's used in Yiddish, and they use the term goy, G-O-Y. It's a reference, it's a pejorative reference to anyone who's not Jewish, and more appropriately, anyone who is a Christian. If you went back a century, it really had a completely different reference to those people living in Israel or to the Jews, if you will. And then it morphed and it changed and it became a pejorative for Christians. Goy, a three-letter word, it comes from Yiddish, which is an amalgam of Russian and Hebrew, but mostly Russian and uh, German, and it's it's kind of like a guttural language. Cattle translates directly from chattel. Chattel translates from personal property. It's something you or I might own or something someone else might own. In Yiddish, we as non-Jews are viewed as the property of those people who know all of the things that are going on in the world, economically, and war, and so on, that we just watch and we take for granted is happening because of what we're told. You are the personal property of those people who have indebted your nation, our nation, to unknown, unseen people. The book I'm writing, which has now taken the name of 343, it's named after the 343 firemen that were killed. The book I'm writing has a number of goals. One of those goals, for those people, I know you've got Jews who listen to this show. I think you've got a friend who goes back as Al Jordan, or his name is Al Jordan. I believe he's a Jew. doesn't make him a bad guy. But one of the goals I have of my book, because of what I've uncovered just in this past year, is is really, I guess we could track it by one line that's in the book, in the beginning pages. Anti-Semitism had a beginning. Anti-Semitism must have an end. Because until anti-Semitism ends, it's going to shield and camouflage those Jews that move throughout the world, manipulating the rest of the world to do what they want us to do to make things happen that they expect to happen. And I'm talking a little bit in riddle, and I don't mean to confuse anybody. We're going to come back into Russia, the Ruble, the Crimea, and Putin. And we'll do that pretty quickly right now. Our government is run by a syndicate. A syndicate 
of Jews. They are not the Jews. It's analogous to the term mafia. All mafia, most mafia, are Italians, but all the Italians are not members. This particular mafia are all Jews, but they are not the Jews. And one of their most powerful weapons that they have created over the last century is anti-Semitism. They've created it in the form of a cloaking device. If a politician steps forward and finds out that there's a pattern of a group of people within and without government that are doing certain things relative to our nation's national debt or relative to creating subprime mortgage bonds or loosening the underwriting for mortgages that are written in the public sector well, then tightening up the underwriting in the public sector. Our politicians are scared shitless from ever bringing attention to it lest they be declared an anti-Semite. It's no different than a stealth weapon that we have developed for our B-17s, or B-117s, I should say, or other aircraft that are undetectable by radar. They've spent over 100 years finally honing the tool that we worry about as being called anti-Semitic. These are the Jews who, in fact, populate our government, populate state governments, populate our law firms, our financial enterprises to a great degree. They create weapons, WMDs, weapons of monetary destruction, and that's going to bring us to the Russian ruble. About a year ago, unannounced on even Fox, Vladimir Putin, who is an old KGB guy with a lot of blood on his hands, now trying to reframe Russia as the great country that all Russians wanted it to be a hundred years ago, before it was invaded by this group of Jews. That Vladimir Putin made a declaration that enraged the Jews who run the U.S. State Department. Vladimir Putin went back in history and proclaimed, as the Tsarist Russia did back a hundred years ago, that the Russian Orthodox Christian Church, and I emphasize the word Christian, the Russian Orthodox Christian Church would be the official church of Russia. That happened in the last 12 months. There was no note made in any of our media about it. But those Jews that are part of this syndicate that I talk about, and we'll call them Rotzis, R-O-T-Z-I-S, Rothschilds, Zionist infiltrators, R-O-T-Z-I, Rothschilds, Zionist infiltrators. They're members of the Rotsum, which is the Rothschild Zionist military. The Rotsis that run our State Department became enraged when they realized that Russia was now going to be going Christian. They've been Christian long, long ago. Jews still live in Russia. 
not to the degree they once did because they've moved, migrated, or repopulated Israel because Jews are not Hebrews. And we can thank a very, very uh, dedicated Zionist Jew for producing a book in 2008 called The Invention of the Jewish People. Jews are all Russians. The Jews never made this planet, never were identified on this planet until over 400 years after Jesus' death. The Jews didn't kill Jesus Christ. The Pharisees did. And Christ was never a Jew, but always a Hebrew. And there it goes. The Hebrews never became the Jews, and the Jews were never the Hebrews. But over the centuries, they did, in fact, use a weapon. It's called debt. It became finely tuned into bankruptcy. It became more finely tuned into currency. And it's been used as a weapon over the last couple of hundred years by its current leadership, the Rothschild family. They use it like a surgeon uses a scalpel. Carefully. Precisely. And they eventually get their results. And they do it patiently. They do it over the course of decades. They plan their crimes. They take it step by step. And they execute it slowly. So about a year ago, Vladimir Putin declared the Russian Orthodox Christian Church the official church of Mother Russia. And those Jews that have managed to take control of our government and have been working towards that for over a hundred years and are responsible for the anomalous collection of an income tax that our government does not have the formal authority to collect, but who infested our government's halls and our laws from 1900 forward, who formed the Federal Reserve in 1913, whose particular missionary, if you will, Paul Warburg, wrote the Federal Reserve Act on Jekyll Island in 1910. Those Jews and their descendants today became enraged when Putin began to send Russia back to where they fought from 1917 forward to destroy the beginning of the second Russian Revolution. The first Russian Revolution, 1905, you all know, failed. But in 1917, they successfully took Russia over, the Bolsheviks, which is another way of saying the Jews. But in reality, merely a sinister confederacy. Because when you read Winston Churchill's comments in his 1920 article in the London Illustrated Herald, he wrote a two-page article that tells you all of what I'm telling you with greater detail than I could ever dream of. I've gotten Winston Churchill actually to write the foreword for my book by just taking his article and putting it in my book to start the whole process rolling. So when we had this event happened and Putin declared the Russian Orthodox Christian Church the official church of Russia, a group of people in Washington said, we've got to stop this. Prior to June of 19, of 2014, rather, 
the Ukraine, which had separated out, had elected democratically a president. They went to the polls. They elected a man, and he was the president of the Ukraine. The European Union made motions for the Ukraine to join the European Union and NATO. The Russian president, duly elected by the Ukrainian people, gave it some thought and said, no, our future lies with Russia. We've been with Russia for the past century and more. We're going to stay. Combine that with Putin's declaration that the Russian Christian Orthodox Church was now the official church of Russia, the United States State Department set about to dethrone the duly elected Russian president. And they did it. And Mr. Petrochenko took over in July, early August of this past year, 2014. People want to call Mr. Petrochenko a Jew. One of his parents was Jewish. So whether he's truly a practicing Jew or he's not, he's got Jew, Jewish blood. Is he part of the sinister confederacy that Winston Churchill spoke of or the group that I speak of? I don't know, but immediately upon taking or seizing office, if you will, he reversed the policy of the man who was duly elected, and he said, we're going to join the European Union and NATO and basically say, go to hell, Mother Russia at which point Putin went in and seized the Crimea. The Crimea had served as a port for Russia for centuries, and there was no way that Putin was going to give it up. So Putin jumped on the bandwagon, took back his Crimea, created a bridge, a land bridge, from Russia to the Crimea, and enraged the Jews that run the United States more than he did when he declared the Russian Christian Orthodox Church the official church of Russia. All of a sudden, we have what looks like a civil war. Russia is assisting, maybe, maybe not. A plane gets shot down. A big black eye is put on Russia. I don't know. My instinct tells me the Mossad has a major part in this because that's what the Mossad does. The Mossad creates false flag wars. They create a conflict between one group so that the other group will rise up, much like 9-11, and all of a sudden you have a war, and it's kind of murky as to who started what. So here we have a situation where sanctions are now brought against Russia. Sanctions are now brought against Putin. Putin was in the process of trying to bring his currency back on board, give it value. They were having difficulty, but the reality was the natural gas and the oil that was coming from Russian land was stabilizing the economy in Russia and stabilizing the Russian ruble. There was only one thing that could really screw it up. The value of the oil, if it were to drop, would in fact cripple Russia. How can you make the value of oil drop in seven months by 50%? How? You have to learn the secrets of Wall Street. The dynamics of our supply have also changed. 
not to the degree where we have a glut of oil, but we have a future glut of supply from the Bakken oil fields and if we start buying this shale oil out of Canada. But it's not here yet. It's coming. It's not here yet. And I'm going to pause for a minute. Let's put all of what I've said on a shelf. The Saudi countries, OPEC, has dominated the supply of oil for the United States for over 60 to 70 years. In 1913, the Federal Reserve was formed. In 1928, the Federal Reserve was bankrupted. Between 1913 and 1925, the Federal Reserve, a private corporation, in Congress was assigned a cosigner, unknownst by any of the members of Congress. Yet they all signed off on the collective legislation that made a cosigner to the privately owned Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve's cosigner was another corporation known as the United States because that's what the United States became, was a corporation. How could our government, formed by constitutional edict and limited by the document itself, how could the United States Constitution allow the government that it created to co-sign a private corporation that benefited private individuals. Because the people who I talk about, the syndicate, the sinister confederacy that Churchill speaks of, the Ratsis, the Rothschild Zionist infiltrators, those people born here in this country who work for Rothschild, the Rotsam, the Rothschild Zionist military, who have been doing this to countries for over a thousand, not thousand, two thousand years, but not always Rothschild. Rothschild's only been here for about 270 years. These people have been here working a plan, and the Federal Reserve managed to get a cosigner in 1928 through the amendments to the Federal Reserve Act from 1913 to 1925, seven separate Congresses in a non fashion were amended so that you couldn't go from one Congress to another and see the work that was being done. You had to understand it and take it and assemble it like a puzzle that it was. And then by Congre congressional edict, the United States, as the corporation that it is, wound up being the cosigner to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve was planned from the 1800s to be formed and then bankrupted. The Federal Reserve was bankrupted in 1928. And then in 1929, we had what's called a Great Depression, which in fact was a great deception. Now, I'm going to ask you to pause a second time and put this on a shelf. I want you to take notice. None of what we suffer today from the time of Obama's acceptance of Cuba to his acceptance of how many million illegal aliens, nothing that's happened has not happened without a larger plan and always done at the hands of this particular group 
which is an intergenerational, international criminal syndicate of Jews. And they hide behind the charge of anti-Semitism. One of the most fearful things that can happen to a man or a woman in Congress is to be charged as being an anti-Semite. It's a wonderful weapon. It works efficiently, effectively, and it hides everything they do. Now, if we go back to 1928, we find out that the Federal Reserve was bankrupted. But it didn't make any difference because it was planned from the, from the start when they formed it in 1913 to eventually be bankrupted. So between 1913 and 1925, it took that long to make the United States as the corporation that it is the co-signer to a bankrupt or eventually being bankrupted company known as the Federal Reserve. In 1928, it happened. The following year, the Great Depression occurred. Those Jews who understood what was taking place had sold their positions in our stock markets out the year previous. They were selling into a frenzy of buying. They were doing the same thing that Rothschild did on the British stock market just the day before Napoleon lost in Europe. And he sold early that morning. And when everybody saw him selling, they sold and they crashed the London market and his other agents in that market were buying everything back for pennies or fennigs, as you'd call it. And at the end of the day, he owned every bond that could have been purchased for literally pennies on the dollar or fennigs on the pound. At the end of the day, the announcement was made that Napoleon really lost. And all of a sudden, the Bank of England belonged to the Rothschild family. So in the 1928 market crash, these people were doing something that Rothschild learned long ago. Create the crisis, sell your stock before the crisis starts, and then when the crisis is in full bloom, buy everything for pennies. And that's what they did. So in 1928, when we had a market depression, all of the Jews who understood what was taking place wound up as multi-multi-millionaires with immense power at the end of our so-called depression. The United States went bankrupt because it was the cosigner, and all sorts of laws changed. It changed your status and my status to becoming subordinate to the federal government when, in fact, our Constitution provided no such potential for that to happen. Our laws were subtly changed. Social Security came into existence. Social Security numbers were given to people. We then began to receive so-called benefits, and an income tax became mal-collected by our so-called IRS which became institutionalized in our lives after 1945. We're living in a time that an intergenerational criminal syndicate has got control of our nation and has had control of our nation, a growing control for over a century. And Vladimir Putin is merely being manipulated by those people that are descendants of the originators of this criminal activity. So to go back and understand 
how to take Putin down. You had to destroy his currency, and the only way you could really do what he was beginning to achieve was to destroy the value of the oil. In order to destroy the value of the oil and understand that, you need to understand what Goldman Sachs does on Wall Street. Aside from the fact that we are now creating more oil, Goldman Sachs trades oil contracts every day. I've actually left a small portion out that I've got to bring back. The United States suffered a bankruptcy in 1928, and here it gets a little more complex. The Federal Reserve was theoretically bankrupted, and our country was discreetly bankrupted in a technical bankruptcy. It was never formally noticed in the world. But the bankruptcy occurred, and we bankrupted out one type of our creditors. When I say one type of our creditor, you need to know some of the basic inner workings of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve moves debt from the United States to two separate entities. It used to. The United States borrows money from its own people, that's internal debt, and it borrows money from external sources, other countries and financiers in other countries. That's external debt. Up until 1928, we redeemed that debt with both parties with gold and or silver. So when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who played his part, not knowing the whole picture, but played his part, came to office, he shut the banks in March of 33. In shutting the banks, he shut down the access to money for people, and currency just disappeared. Commerce stopped. You couldn't buy gasoline for your automobile. You couldn't buy milk or butter for your table. The people that had an awful lot of money, superfluity, if you will call it, they survived. But by the third day that the banks were closed, 90% of the public in the United States was desperate. He came to the podium on that particular Thursday and he said, folks, I'm going to open the banks tomorrow. He was talking to the United States internal creditors, the people who formed this nation. This was the time that all of our statutes changed and all of the jurisdictions changed and when the federal government actually began to have total jurisdiction and control over the people of this nation, when in fact it was supposed to be the states that had jurisdiction over the people. The federal government had virtually no jurisdiction over the people. So in 1928, everything really began to change with the beginning of Social Security, which eventually happened in 33, June of 1933. But in 19 19- Uh, 28, when the bankruptcy began, five years later, in that March of 1933, Roosevelt came to the podium on that Thursday and said, close the banks on Monday. I'm going to open them Tuesday, actually. I'm going to open the banks for you tomorrow, but you have to do something for me. If you have gold jewelry at home, if you have gold coins at home, You need to bring it to the banks because we'll no longer accept gold 
as a payment of any kind of a debt. You'll be allowed to keep a small amount of gold for jewelry for your own use, but for the most part, if you have more than, and I don't know if it was a half an ounce or thereabouts, you would be in violation and suffer a potentially quarter-million-dollar fine and 10 years in jail. So the announcement was made that on that Friday in 1933 in March, Roosevelt declared gold was no longer to be used as currency, and it was collected. He said, take it to the banks. We're not stealing it from you. We're going to give you back a currency, a new kind of paper, and you'll be able to use it just like you could have used gold. It's going to be easier to carry around. You're going to be able to protect it easier. You're not going to worry about where you store it in your home or in a bank. It'll be better. Trust me. So everybody said, okay, okay. I want to feed my children. I need gasoline. I need power turned on in my house. Everybody was screaming for money. So Franklin Delano Roosevelt at that moment said, oh, by the way, in addition to the gold, bring me those certificates. Bring me those gold and silver certificates that you have in your possession which was the most important thing he wanted. Those certificates were gold certificates, was when you brought gold to the bank and they gave you back a $500 certificate. In those days, you could get up to a $10,000 certificate. Today, you only get up to a $100 bill. And by the way, a $100 bill was never a $100 bill prior to 1928 or 1933. We call it a $100 bill because... That's what it is. It's a bill. It's not money. It represents the debt of our nation. It represents a bill that the United States government owes to somebody. And that you use it for money. It's really not money. It's a bill. So Roosevelt said, by the way, bring me all of those nice certificates and I'll give you back money for those too. They needed to get that paper in their hands because it was a major, major piece of evidence that was going to disappear from the scene as it did. So at the end of 1933, March and through June of 1933, the internal creditors turned over all of their gold and silver specie to the banking system of the United States, which handed it over to the U.S. Treasury, who then in turn turned it over to England, where the Bank of England, that was long ago taken over by the Rothschild family, the Bank of England collected all of that gold in the United States and the people were bankrupt. But wait a minute. The United States had its own supply of gold that backed those certificates that now no longer were in the hands of the people. And that gold is in Fort Knox and other places throughout this United States. And that gold was going to be redeemed to our foreign creditors, which it was. So between 1928 
1971, I say, the gold in Fort Knox continued to back our currency to our external creditors, nations of the world who, in fact, lent us money, used our, our money, used a relationship with the United States, and we would send them gold in payment of their debt. 2%, 3% interest, whatever it happened to be. There came a time in 1971 that that gold ran out. It ran out really in 1968. Nixon was president. Kissinger was his advisor. And Kissinger was a Razi. He's a Rothschild Zionist infiltrator. Born in Germany, naturalized citizen of the United States, but a Rothschild soldier through and through. The entire cabinet running around in Washington in 1968-69 saying, we can't pay our interest payments to foreign creditors. What are we going to do? Mr. Kissinger came to Mr. Nixon and said, I have a solution. And Nixon said, I'm listening. Now, you have to step back and understand that Rothschild planned this brilliantly. Because in 1917, they issued the Balfour Declaration, and the State of Israel was seminally begun with that declaration out of the foreign ministry of Britain. And in 1947, <coughs> UN Resolution 181, in December of 1987, formed the State of Israel in May of 1948. So in May of 1948, Israel is finally born. But we're going through a whole bunch of other stuff in history here, and what I'm trying to do is get you to understand nothing happens without a coordinated effort by a bunch of Jews who are members of a syndicate and trashing the name Jew in the process and killing millions of their fellow brethren. But you and I are not allowed to talk about about Jews because we are going to be gauged as anti-Semitic, and we're not. So in 1947 and 1948, the state of Israel came into existence, a small little blip on the screen between the formal or informal bankruptcy of our nation in 1928 and 1971, when Kissinger comes to Nixon and says, I have a solution. We will be able to take care of the foreign countries and the debt we owe them, Assemble the secretaries of the cabinet, and I will come and make an announcement. So Nixon did. The cabinet came together. Kissinger came into the room, and he said, my solution is as follows. We're currently paying $3 a barrel for oil. I want the authority to go to Saudi Arabia. I want to... I want to group the nations together over there and let them charge us $12 a barrel. Well, the room, needless to say, went silent in 1971. And they said, Henry, are you out of your effing mind? We're paying $3 a barrel. The public is buying gasoline at 35 cents a gallon. What you're proposing is gasoline at $1.10 a gallon. The public will kill us. He said, don't worry about it. We're going to raise the price of oil for $12 a barrel. 
And the sand niggers are going to keep maybe 50 cents. The other $9.50 will be invested in our debt back here in the United States. And the secretaries of the cabinet sat back in their chairs and they looked and said, Henry, what are you saying? And Henry says, the sale of oil throughout the world will continue to pay the United States debt where gold is now no longer in existence in our Fort Knox. Rothschild understood that that gold would be gone at a point in time that was appropriate for his needs. The secretaries of the cabinet said, can you do this? And he says, I can do it. So Henry made his trip to the Middle East. OPEC was formed. And they had one more little detail. They, they called Bretton Woods, August 15, 1971. And they called the nations of the world together, and they said, we're meeting, we have good news, and we have bad news. They met that morning at 10 a.m., Nixon wasn't there. Kissinger was. Secretary of our Treasury was. And they said, we have an announcement, two announcements to make, good news and bad news. What do you want first? It was decided to give them the good news. And they said, well, the good news can't be given to you without the bad news. The bad news is we're not going to pay our debts to you the way we had agreed to pay them. And they all looked around the table and said, what? And they say, we agreed to redeem our debt to you with gold and or silver. That stops today. But there is good news, and you asked us for the good news, and the good news is we're going to pay you the debt. Everyone in the room sat back in a chair and said, what in the hell are you talking about? You're not going to redeem the debt with gold and silver, but you're going to pay us our debt. And Kissinger said, yes. And they said, how are you going to pay the debt if you're not going to pass in silver and gold? He said, you're going to buy oil in the Middle East with the dollars that you have in your reserve currency accounts. And with that, France was the first one to scream and said, viva la France, we will not do that. Our French franc is sovereign and we will continue to buy oil with the franc that we use. And Germany quickly chimed in and said, the Deutsche Mark is sovereign, and we'll continue to buy oil with the Deutsche Mark. And before long, Japan was chiming in, and the other nations were chiming in the same way. Our currency is solid. Our currency will be used to purchase our oil. And with that, Kissinger looked at his watch and said, it's 10 after 10, gentlemen. The nations in the Middle East have banded together and they formed the oil production, oil production, uh, OPEC, if you will. And until 12 noon today, you can buy all the oil you want with your currencies. At 12.01 this afternoon, those nations will only take U.S. dollars. And they stopped and they looked and they said, what? And at that moment, in August 15, 1971, at Bretton Woods up in New Hampshire, the petrodollar was born. The room went silent. They all looked at each other. They don't know what happened to them. They knew something happened to them. They shook hands, and they all went home. 
Our boys came down to Washington. Congress said to Henry, how did it go? Nixon said, how did it go? Henry said, it's done. They're going to redeem our debt when they buy their oil for their countries because they have no oil. They'll no longer be able to buy oil with French francs, German Deutschmarks, Krona, Yen, or whatever it was they purchased oil with before. That's the story behind the birth of the petrodollar. And Henry said, just a minute, though. We do need something. And Congress said, what's that? Our new partners in the Middle East, we have to ensure that they keep oil flowing through the Straits of Ramuz, the tankers, and whatever else, whatever other methods they use. We need to make sure that all of that oil flows as freely as it can. We're going to have to open up a military base in Kuwait, in Bahrain. Saudi Arabia wouldn't allow it. And another six nations of the world, all in the Middle East. We stationed over 200,000 troops over there. We sent two carrier fleets. And Congress said, no problem, Henry. That's what we do well. We do military really well. And Congress said, you got it. The only thing Congress hadn't figured out is that Rothschild was the architect of this. And Israel was having tremendous pressure from their their Arabic neighbors. And all of a sudden, the United States military was there to protect Israel going off into the 1970s and the 1980s. We've been duped, and no one was in in Washington was smart enough to understand it. It's a complex, fantastic construct. And we're going to come back to the Rupal in a minute. So what we had, we had our debt manipulate us like the cattle we are. We were herded. We were herded into the gas lines under Jimmy Carter when we couldn't buy gas. And after enough time, we said, we don't give a damn if we can't buy gas. We'll pay anything as long as we can get gas. So the rise in price from $3 to actually $15 a barrel where our oil went from 35 cents or gasoline went from 35 cents a gallon to a dollar and a dollar 15, we paid for the debt of our nation indirectly and we continue to pay our income taxes all for the sake of defending this bubble of pus on the other side of this planet called Israel, which has not got a damn thing to do with the Jewish people. It's got everything to do with the Mossad, the destabilization of governments, the destabilization of currencies, until we wind up with one world currency that's based upon debt that Rothschild controls. So what you're watching today, my friends, 9-11 included, and often Russia, is the destabilization of Russian economy by dropping the price of oil. Now, how did we do it? When a contract on oil is purchased, you're buying usually 100 barrels of oil at a time. You can buy the puts and the shares or the puts and the, and the calls on it where you're just buying the option, or you can actually buy the contract. Now, contracts can be bought years and sometimes a decade in advance. 
So if you know the oil price is going to go way up, you can buy oil when it's selling for $3 in the Middle East for $7, and people will think you're crazy until you go to unload it later down the road at $27 or 37 or 57 or 67 Now, in a technical sense, and I don't claim to know all of the technical specifics of this, a Goldman Sachs or a trader in the United States can only trade a barrel of oil once, one direction. Goldman Sachs has been caught trading our oil multiple trips, if you will. They buy it back and forth, back and forth, through sister organizations until the price goes up to 60 and 70 and $100. Well, that's why we've been paying so much for oil over this last six years. It's artificially increased, and I suspect that a good deal of that money is the reason our bank stocks are as valid and solid and like concrete again. You do understand, all of you, that the dollar is nice and stable, don't you? There's a brilliance behind this. But with this brilliance comes a perversion and a big price. So here we are. We're pissed off. We're a group of Jews in Washington, a bunch of atheistic, secular, nasty Jews who have nothing to do with the Jews because we're part of a very, very well-organized syndicate of Jews who don't care how many of the other Jews are killed because of what we do. In fact, we've led these other Jews to slaughter down through this past century. We're responsible for millions of them to have been butchered, but we stand behind this thing we say is anti-Semitic. We'll scream it at the top of our lungs if someone wants to look at our bookkeeping, wants to understand how we have devolved the laws of the nation of the United States, wants to understand how we organized and collectively destroyed the Glass-Steagall Act, how we managed to destabilize the currency in the United States. We'll scream anti-Semitism to the top of our lungs, even though at the same time we're killing millions of our fellow Jews. That's what we do. We're the best organized criminal syndicate in the history of the world. So we will run the price of oil down, and we will make Mr. Putin's oil revenues disappear. And we will bring enormous pressure on Russia. Or we will make Russia give serious thought to going to war which is what you've seen in Yahoo and our social media over the last five months. You've seen the, the prompting that we're listening to as citizens. You're watching about their great weapons and how they have nuclear forces, and how we might get war. You're watching all of this bullshit because in the background, Mr. Rothschild would like nothing better than to see Russia and the United States at war. That destabilization creates great distraction in the governments that he wants to continue to infiltrate and take stronger control over. That's the name of the game. So the value of oil in Russia had to be killed. I don't know where it's going to go. Putin is a good chess player. I would vote for him as president because this black president we have is merely a puppet strings being pulled every day 
by Israel. Rahm Emanuel was Israel's point man, Rothschild's point man, to take and cultivate this black puppet to be president. David Axelrod, another Rotsi, another Rothschild infiltrator, Zionist infiltrator. David Axelrod out of Chicago was a talent scout. He found Mr. Obama in 1993, and he said, I think I got something. And within a year of that, Rahm Emanuel, working in the Clinton White House, took a two-year leave of absence to join the Army. He said to Hillary, I'm just so perturbed over what's going on in our desert storm and Iraq and Saddam Hussein. I want to join the Army, Hillary. Can I get a two-year leave of absence from staff with you and Bill? And Hillary said, absolutely. We'll send your check to Maryland to your home. And Rahm Emanuel did take a leave of absence right after David Axelrod discovered Barack Obama. The only problem with the whole picture is Rahm Emanuel didn't join the U.S. Army. He joined the Israeli Defense Forces. He went to Israel for two years with his brother Ezekiel Emanuel and a bunch of Jew lawyers, Zionist lawyers, where they sat up, sequestered themselves, and wrote Obamacare, which is designed to cause chaos and debt beyond our control to handle over the next 10 years. The chaos, when you interfere with the health systems of our public and the money that it can't afford to be paid for or raise, you have no idea what's on the horizon. All during that distraction that that will cause, more of these little two-legged termite bastards come in and take over our states, take over our federal government. They're brilliant at it. So the simple question about why the price of oil has dropped in Russia is really very simply answered. It's been handled, it's been contrived, it's been manipulated. But it's one of the smaller things that we're living through from the late 1800s until today. All of it's at the, at the hands of Rothschild. All of it. And that can be proven because of the lectures that Rothschild gave in 1897 in Basel, Switzerland, where in his 21st lecture he threatened to rig the bids to the nation's debt. And in 1991, Solomon Brothers who did the exclusive bidding of all our debt was caught rigging our bids a hundred years after Rothschild threatened it. It's a fascinating study. It's complex. The person that listens to it, it's not complicated. And one of my major goals is to stop anti-Semitism. You'll hear me talk about Jews in what appears to be a pejorative way. My heart goes out to them, to those that are innocent. They all know Rothschild is what he is. They all call Rothschild king of the Jews. And so many, many of them also know Rothschild butchered millions of them in the Holocaust. 
They don't all look the other way. But if the majority of the Jews who know this would rise up, Rothschild's days would be numbered. But Rothschild's made a promise to all of the Jews. Trust me. You'll be there with me. He sounds like a Christ of the times. You'll join me at some time in the future. Just trust me. I may have to kill a few hundred thousand of you here. Another million of you may have to go there. But trust me. And the Jews who brag about being the champions of social justice believe this shit. They're the dumbest group of people ethnically on the face of the earth. The absolute opposite of what you and I would ordinarily believe to be a brilliant, clever group of people. They've been sold down the river so many times by this megalomaniacal bastard of a family, and they continue to follow him. But there are rumblings. Jews against Zionism and about a dozen other groups, you can find them on the Internet, they've figured out a part of what Rothschild does. They don't know it's Rothschild per se. They just know it's Zionism. All Zionists aren't bad. There's a lot of them willy-nilly following around saying, oh, it's wonderful if we have our own home in Israel. Well, Israel's not a place for the Jews. It's a home for a military apparatus. It's a, it's a home for the Mossad. When they want to destabilize something in Venezuela or support somebody in Brazil or do something in Peru or in Spain or in Portugal, they have an organization in Israel. It's speech Spanish or Portuguese or Peruvian or Spanish, wherever they go. They've inculcated the languages of the world. The diaspora, which has sent them throughout the world, has them in the governments of the world. And at this point, I tell people, we ordinarily look at the Rothschilds as bankers. Nothing could be further from the truth. About eight months ago, I seized upon this, and we've expanded upon it to the point where we now pretty much can prove it. Attila the Hun used spears, large machines, swords, shields. Constantine, the same. Genghis Khan, the same. They were warlords. They led thousands and thousands of men on expeditions. They took over huge land mass. They were amateurs. Rothschild is not a banker. The Rothschild family is not engaged in banking. They have never been engaged in banking from about the 1860s forward. For over 155 years now, the Rothschilds are warriors. They are war makers. They don't use spears and arrows and guns. They use banks and their knowledge of how to create national debt and the pressure and the pain and the anxiety and the distraction that debt causes within the halls of the governments of the world that they take over without a spear or an arrow or a gun or a sword. 
So what's going to happen with Russia, I can't predict. I can only tell you that our nation is in desperate, desperate condition. And it's times like this, I wish that Fred was a secret CIA agent or an FBI guy that's sent out into the Middle West or the hinterlands to collect people that might just hit upon something that helps this country. Because I go see my congressman on a regular basis. I talk to him like this. He's a, pardon my French ladies, fucking idiot. He's a Republican. He's on the finance committee. I took him through how our currency is debt and his $9 million mansion is owned by the creditors of our country. And here he is, his fourth term, on our currency committee and going through it. And he explains, I explained to him how our note, our Federal Reserve note, is a borrowing. It's merely the debt of the United States. And he looks at myself and the five professionals I drug into the room with him, and he says, gee, I never knew that before. He's a very wealthy man. He's one of the top five wealthy people. And I said to him, I said, you're a classic example that men of great wealth are not always great men. And I left with a fit of anger about me that I couldn't even describe. So I don't know how to get this information in a temperate way to the right people. So, Fred, I pray that secretly you work for the U.S. government and that you capture people, whether it's me or someone else, and that they alert the authorities to various things that are taking place in our government that are palpable, tangible, that can actually be proven. Because all of what I've sold, said to you tonight, about 98% of it can be tracked through by substance in a material way and be proven absolutely correct. The historical parts especially, the ones that are contemporaneous with our times today are a little more challenging because this is our current generation of Jewish, or if you will, Ratzim syndicate, our Ratzi, Ratzi infiltrators, because that's what they are. They're infiltrators. They're not infiltrators, although the word does pronounce almost the same way. They're traitors. They were born here, most of them, their loyalty is someplace else. That's the brilliance of what Rothschild has created. He's created a group of warriors in every nation of the world, most dominantly in the United States, because in the 1800s he knew that this country would be the dominant military power of the world, and he needed to control that military power if he was going to have the impact throughout the world that he wanted. So using currency and bankruptcy and people that he controlled in this government, he uses our military like a parasite uses a host. I don't know what else I can say to you tonight, Fred. Hey, Pat, uh, to kind of bring this uh, back to the subject matter of the dollar, the rise in the dollar, can you connect that? Okay. Thread, yeah, that's uh, real easy. quick to kind of close it out. All right. 
1978-79, when this syndicate planned 9-11, and, and I don't believe they planned 9-11 in 79, they may have, the towers had been built. They were built in the late 60s. They opened up around 1969-71, someplace in there. But in 68-70, under Jimmy Carter, I think Jimmy Carter, when, when did he go out? 67, something like that. He was before Nixon? Yeah. Jimmy Carter. No, no, no. Car- Carter was in the 70s. When was Carter? Yeah, yeah. He was in the 70s, just before Reagan. That's yep. right. In the 70s, under Carter, we had the um, the, uh, I want to say RCA, it's not, um, oh yeah, CRA. We had the CRA in 1978, I think it was. Yeah, 1978. Community Restoration Act. I think Barney Frank was still in there. He was just in there under uh, in Fannie and Freddie. Um, and this this does get to be an interesting subject by itself. And I should make it as a chapter in a book. But the book has gotten to be so complex and so big already. But under Jimmy Carter, because, you know, he's a nice guy. He was an idiot. You know, he's a brilliant guy. I mean, he was a physicist, nuclear physicist. Uh, And he's a well-meaning, good heart soul. And because he was controllable, um, he was chosen to do what he he did. The Community Restoration Act was impacted on the United States. And what did it do? Well, it said, you know, we got a lot of black people out here, and they can't get the dream of home ownership. And we need to bring the dream of home ownership to the black community. Well, I I am definitely not a racist. But the blacks have been easily, unfortunately, easily used by the Rothschild machine, and they have been kept down. You've got these idiots out here. They're not idiots. I shouldn't call them idiots. You've got this guy, um, Reverend Sharpton, and you've got this guy, Reverend um, Jesse Jackson. Why in the world would they be allowed to stay in power, if you will, over this large swath of America? It used to be 11%, it's probably up around 13 14% of our population today. Why in the world would they be allowed to be saying anything that gets a voice throughout this nation? Well, because the Jewish syndicate, the Ratsis, the Rothschild Zionist infiltrators, or the Ratsim, if you will, that they belong to, has such control over our media, they make it available. So they got the Community Restoration Act passed, and it said, paraphrasing it, we're going to see to it that $4.5 billion is lent to the black community. It didn't say black, but it did say to people who are otherwise disenfranchised from our credit market. What it was really saying, people that couldn't spell the word credit, much less understand how to pay a bill. So in 1978-79, which was the beginning of 9-11, they began lending money into communities of people that bought these derelict properties, crappy properties, call them what you want, to make the American dream of owning a home come true for them. But they didn't lend it to them in the traditional sense where underwriting was standard, where they had to have an income, where they had to demonstrate stability in the job, where they had to demonstrate they weren't taking welfare. 
the underwriting of those loans was significantly different. So in 1978, that was done, the Community Restoration Act, and quickly escalated from a mandate by Congress that you will lend $4 billion more this year to the following year that went to 10 or $12 billion, with Fannie and Freddie coming in around 1980 saying, hey, look at what we did. We lent out $22 billion or whatever it was. So the race was on to get money, which was really U.S. debt. That's the secret, guys. This is not money. Every dollar that we see in our finger is a representation of our country's debt. So when you, when you borrow $100,000 from a bank and you have to pay back over the next 30 years $270,000, you've invented another $170,000 worth of U.S. debt. It had to come from someplace. It had to be issued by the Federal Reserve. That gets to be more complex than this conversation. But in 1978 through 1980-81, all of this new funny money was being spit out into the public of the United States. Well, in 1981, Solomon Brothers, who was headquartered at Building 7 in 1991 and got caught in 1991 rigging the bids to the U.S. Federal Reserve for our U.S. debt, Solomon Brothers, in 1980, invented a brand-new WMD, Weapon of Monetary Destruction. In the early 1970s, Michael Milken, another syndicate member, still alive, making donations to lots of charities, went to Camp Fed for a year and a half or two years, Michael Milken, in the early 1970s, created a great weapon of monetary destruction called a derivative, where you can amplify a person's debt by 2, 22, or 222 times. So if the debt on a Wall Street bond was $2 billion, he could take it up to $1 trillion with the derivative. He could amplify that kind of debt and force the government into needing to print more debt. Because when our government's presses run, they're not printing money, they're printing debt. So Michael Milken invented the derivative in the early 1970s, went to jail later on, and in 1978, the CRA Act forced Fannie and Freddie to underwrite billions upon billions upon billions of new mortgage money and in 1980-81, a derivative called a credit default, which was paying people off if a bond went bad, Solomon Brothers, who was making a market in it, along with auctioning all of our debt, rigging the bids, every bid they did, they rigged the bids, Solomon Brothers invented what's called the swap and they applied it to the credit default swap. So a credit default, which I'm not about to try to teach you here, and I'm not sure I could teach you, but a credit default which had an amplification of down, let's say a downside amplification that went into the dozens if not the hundreds, could now be sold to somebody else before it went bad or paid off, which they just rarely paid off. They all went bad. Goldman Sachs began making mortgages that they... They prayed would go bad. Solomon Brothers made mortgages that they prayed went bad. 
Every mortgage printed more money. So in 1980, the credit default swap was originated in Solomon Brothers. And in 1981-83, along comes the subprime mortgage-backed security. A humongous WMD, Weapon of Monetary Destruction. These are the weapons that Rotsim, or the Rotsis, do well with. They sharpen the tips of these spears to a point you can't believe. These are their weapons of war. So these mortgages went out and proliferated and proliferated and proliferated. And Wall Street began to exercise its natural talent for greed. And he said, holy shit. If we take 3,000 of these $200,000 mortgages and we bind them together in a security, we can sell them on Wall Street to pension funds. And if they go bad, we're finished with them. We've washed our hands of them. We've punched piloted them. There is no recourse to us at the bank. <laughs> Where is all the money in the United States? As Willie Sutton said, when he was attacked, or if you will, confronted by a newsman in the 1960s, hey, Willie, why do you rob the banks? Willie answered real quick. He says, because that's where the money is. Well, in 1970s and 80s, the bank was the bank was not the place there was any money. <clears throat> Pension funds had the money. Municipalities had the money. Wherever there was tens of billions of investor-prone money, that's where you had to go. And what did you have to do to seduce that money into your pocket? You had to have a bond that could sell to them. And you had to have a bond that was guaranteed by some kind of uh, government-looking apparatus so that the fiduciary manager for that pension fund would say, well, you know, we're used to only making 1.5% with the men's pension money, and you're telling me I can make 7%? Well, I have to go to our committee. I have to talk to them. This sounds like too big of a risk. And the fellows from Solomon Brothers and from Lehman Brothers and from Goldman Sachs said, oh, no, these are guaranteed by credit defaults. <clears throat> They're guaranteed really good. And on top of that, we're going to take a 10% uh, 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 bond, and we're, we're going to put a bond here. We'll, we'll take a few. If you're going to buy a $2 billion security from us, we'll take a bond for $200 million and put it right there so the first 10% Failures, you're paid, you're guaranteed. And you know, these are mortgages. They're on people's homes. They never fail. So we'll, we'll, we'll probably not even pay any of these mortgages off to you for a loss. It's going to only last five years because everybody that borrows money for a mortgage either sells their home or they refinance in five years. So they have 30-year mortgages, but they're all going to go away in five years. You'll make your 7.5%. That's three times what you're getting your men now in these dippy-dippy little 1.5% returns. So the banks looked at this and they said, holy gee, tremoli, brothers, we can sell billions and trillions of these things and we can make a fortune. So they began originating these banks, these, these mortgages. 
And they would um, go to people and say, we just invented a new one. It's a stated one. And they'd say, what? what? What's a stated mortgage? Well, it's one where you don't have to tell us um, anything about your background or your earnings. And they said, what? Well, you know, if you want to borrow uh, $400,000, normally you have to demonstrate that you're making $85,000 income. So this new stated loan, uh, you you just tell us you make whatever you want. You can't lie now. I I don't want you to think you can lie. You're not supposed to lie. Don't tell us a lie. But if you need $400,000 and you're only making $18,000 a year and you lie to us, you know we're going to give you that money. So the subprime mortgage-backed security was in, invented somewhere around 1980, 79-81 at Solomon Brothers. Solomon Brothers, who bid our debt every day of the week with the Federal Reserve and rigged the bids, as per Natty Rothschild's lecture in 1897, his 21st lecture at the first Zionist freaking Congress, he said, we will rig the bids to the debts of the nations of the world so that the cost of the money that the Congress borrows will always come in at a point or a point and a half, and it's cheap, so they'll borrow more and more and more and more and more and more so that the country will borrow more money than they can ever hope to repay, and we'll be sitting there at the end of the conveyor belt picking up all of this power while the government is confused and distracted with the debt that it has put itself into, as you and I know we are still doing. And Solomon Brothers invented this subprime mortgage-backed security weapon of monetary destruction, and they also invented the swap of the credit default. And when you tie the two of them together, it was incredible. Um, Absolutely incredible. And then AIG with Hank Greenberg, another Roxy, another Rothschild soldier, Hank Greenberg formed a subsidiary called AIG, let's see, Capital, AIG Capital, no, no, AIG Financial Products Incorporated. He formed AIG Financial Products Incorporated, and the only product that AIG Financial Products sold was the credit default swaps. Now, that gets to be a very technical issue that I have a great command of, and I'm not about to get into that because I'll have you looking at the wall for the next three days. But that that financial product began the process of taking our country apart because these mortgages failed. Well, geez, why did they fail? Well, you have to understand Alan Greenspan, who works for the Rothschild Enterprise, he's a dual Israeli citizen like Hank Greenberg is, Alan Greenspan needed a reason to get all you guys out in Indianapolis, Washington State, Texas, Chicago, New York, and Alabama, and the other places throughout this great nation. Alan Greenspan needed to provide you an interest rate that had you all running to refinance your homes. Well, holy Jesus, how can we do this? How can we get millions of Americans to simultaneously run to the banks, or if the banks are underwriting uh, too tough, we'll go to these new breeds of people that are selling these subprime mortgage-backed certificates that they're lending money based upon whatever I tell them, even if it's a lie, 
how can I get millions of Americans to run to those lenders at the same time? Well, why don't we drive the rates down on Wall Street? Well, if we do that, you know, somebody's going to see us doing it. We're going to get freaking caught. We can't get caught because if we get caught, we'll destroy 200 years of work that Mr. Rothschild has worked so hard to get into place. So, no, we can't just go and lower the rates. How many rate lowers do you think we have to do, Alan? I probably have to do 16, 18 rate lowerings so that we can really flood the market with this funny security crap and get millions of people into these mortgages. 17 or 18 rate lowerings? Alan, yeah, oh, yeah, we'll have to get it down at least that much lower. Well, we've got another thing that we've been cooking on for a little while. Maybe this will work. Well, what's that? Well, we're not allowed to tell you, Alan. Uh, just you go do what you got to do, and uh, we'll do what we got to do. So the conversations with the Mossad continued. The explosive materials were constructed in the Negev Desert at the Israeli base at Dimona, their nuclear base. These devices were put into what you would look at and call an opera trunk, but a very large opera trunk. And it was hinged. You could open it up and then you could close it. And when you opened it up and closed it, it would close around a 42-inch box column. It was four inches thick at bedrock in the World Trade Center and tapered finally at the top floors to about a half-inch thick box column, a fully sealed 42-inch box column. They were welded together from the granite in the ground five stories below the World Trade Center all the way to to the ceiling at the top floor. So these opera trunks were fitted with a profile of nanothermite, and 9-11 was planned from July, well, it was planned from the 70s, maybe the 80s, and Larry Silverstein took over the Trade Center on July 23rd, 2001. Larry Silverstein works for the Rothschild Empire. He's a a Rotsy. He's a Rothschild Zionist infiltrator. I call them Rotsies now. It's an easy word to fall into. So Larry Silverstein took it over, and security changed, and security allowed a convoy of trucks in and out of those buildings over the course of about three weeks in July. Actually, they were continuing to work right up until a couple of days before 9-11. And the buildings, as you know, were brought down by those planes, which were an impossibility. The buildings were planned to withstand two 709s each or 737s each. I forget. I was in the construction meetings. I was there in the 1960s when they told us about the new fire code, and they told us that the buildings were being built, and they looked like, and they really were, chimneys, and that they were petrified about a plane crashing into them. So the buildings were overbuilt so they could withstand two planes coming into them. And a diesel fuel would never bring them down. And the fire department would take the buildings and put any fires out because they weren't putting any sprinklers in them. Because the plane would cut off any of the pumping apparatus. And uh, they built the buildings with a brand new fire code so that the New York Fire Department could extinguish any flames. 
from an aircraft. And the fire department in New York did, in fact, extinguish those flames. But I'm getting off track here. So the velocity of the sales of these subprime securities just took off from the 1980s. Tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars. Banks couldn't get enough of them just so they could sell them for another profit, not just the interest rate they collected at the front end when they skimmed equity out of people's homes, but they'd sell it for another profit, and then they'd have the credit defaults out there where they'd sell that and make a market net, make more profit. All of this money that they're making is going into what was otherwise then known as a terribly bankrupt U.S. banking system. The pension funds of the world were looted. It was the biggest bank heist in the history of mankind. It was, it was brilliant. It still is brilliant. They laugh about it over brandy stifters and cigars, these people I talked to you about. They joke about it today. There's a, there's a discussion taking place probably in the city club in New York tonight about what one of the guys did that made something happen that otherwise wouldn't have happened. So we all saw the planes go in, and then we saw the buildings come down, and we know about the controversy of Building 7 coming down at 521 in the afternoon. Nobody can explain it. It's an anomaly. No, it's not. The building was demolished, and so were the two towers. But unless you know what happened on 913, you'll never understand 911. On 913, a ROTC, a Rothschild Zionist infiltrator, very sophisticated infiltrator, Alan Greenspan, came to the Congress, and he made an announcement. Our markets have been impacted in a negative way. This is terrible. It's shaken the faith in the U.S. financial system. We can't allow this to happen. It happened on Tuesday. The markets opened again on Thursday. The tandem computers over at SIAC, which is the Securities Industry Computer Associates, they reconcile the New York and the American Stock Exchange every day. I furnished that billing. I put $7 million worth of equipment in that building back in the 70s. I know the people there well. All of the computers were triply redundant. So on Thursday, Alan Greenspan came through and he says, everything's been reconciled, reconciled, reconciled. We've got to stabilize our market. So from today forward, I want to let you all know here in Congress, we're lowering the Federal Reserve rate by 100 basis points. That's one point. Congress said, wow, that's great. Alan, give it to him. The market loved it. A lower Fed rate. Investments poured in. People borrowed money cheap. They invested more and more money in the market. So our market stabilized. Took a big dip from 9-11, but it stabilized pretty quickly. Alan's a bright guy. He understands how to pull the right levers at the Fed, just like Janet Yellen, another Israeli citizen right after she took over from Ben Shalom Bernanke, who was not the first Irish Catholic. He also was an Israeli citizen. Are you starting to get a picture, folks? So here you have Alan Greenspan. He goes to Congress on a Thursday after 9-11, and he makes the announcement that we're going to restore faith in our markets. We're going to stabilize the markets. We're going to put a big Band-Aid on this. We're going to drop the rate by 100 basis points, and he did. And when you drop the Fed rate, mortgage rates happen to go down. But nobody, anybody in the Congress or the United States would then ever see the connection between 9-11, dropping of the Fed rate, the switch 
going to on for Americans to say, hey, look, you know, we're paying 8.2% for our mortgage. We can go out and get a new one now for 7.7%. And Millie said to her husband, Teddy, "Um, uh, Teddy, I don't know as if it's worth it. That's only a point. I think there's a formula out there. I think you need a point and a quarter to make it worthwhile to refinance. I don't think it's worth it yet. And Teddy said, oh, no, and they were arguing. They didn't have to argue long, though. Because within a week or two, Allen came back to Congress and said, I'm going to drop the Fed rate again. And then within a couple more weeks, Allen came back again and again and again and again and again and unprecedented 22 freaking times back-to-back lowering of the Fed rate all because of 9-11. Unseen to everybody all throughout this country, the mortgage market was going flipping crazy. And all of those Community Restoration Act underwritten loans that were garbage loans just amplified, 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 amplified. More loans that were done, the more neighborhood houses were appraised. And the more appraisals, the quicker the values went up. And the values went up, and the values went up, and the values went up, and the values went up. Allen reversed field about a year and a half later, and he said, hey, we got to cool this off. He had to look like a responsible, temperate individual, but he knew what he was doing. So he reversed rate, and he started to raise the Fed rate, and it did. It cooled things off a little bit. It cooled them off a little bit. And then in January of 12, I think it was 12. I don't know. You know maybe, no, it wasn't 12. It was, uh, well, but I forget what January it was. But Mr. Ben Shalom Bernanke came in, and he said, you know, I'm going to lower the rate again. Well, things didn't die when Greenspan began to raise the rate. They just kind of slowed down a little bit. But they were still writing a lot of mortgages because the rate was down from like 6 or 7% to half a point. You were still getting people lining up. They couldn't get appointments with their mortgage people quick enough. They were still doing these mortgages. And then Ben Shalom Bernanke came in. He says, you know, I'm going to lower the rate. Now, at this point, you would think, well, that means everyone's going to run to the rates, run to the mortgages again. Well, what they understood about Wall Street was what the typical person never gets to understand. Wall Street loves low rates. It hates high rates. The only thing that Wall Street dislikes worse than a high interest rate is confusion. When Wall Street can't figure out what in the frick is going on, Wall Street stops putting money into the market. And when Ben Shalom Bernanke took over and began to lower the rates again, he sent that signal. And he knew it. They know that. They know those things. You and I don't, but they know it. So 9-11 was a very sophisticated criminal operation. And from that point forward, monetary systems throughout the world started to melt down. Ireland, Spain is still in trouble, Portugal, the euro, Greece. Now Greece wants to abandon the euro, which is probably going to happen because the euro is dead. It's just nobody's brought flowers to the funeral yet. And what's happening to the dollar? The reason that I'm in this little distraction 
dollar has gotten immensely strong again, hasn't it? Oh, my God, look at the dollar. The euro is dropping like crazy against it. Even the pound is dropping. Interesting, though, Mr. Rothschild's Britain never threw the pound away to join the euro, but Britain was all in favor of the European Union, but they wouldn't join the euro. I wonder why. Did they know something you and I don't know? <laughs> you bet they did. You bet they do. But the dollar, the dollar has gotten stronger. You get all this email from people. The dollar's going to collapse. The dollar's not going to collapse. Now this is where it gets very ugly, guys. This country's in such deep shit, you and I can't even begin to calculate. And the people in our government that do understand we're in deep shit, they can calculate. And they get calculated every day because every time they say something, somebody turns around and says, you say a word and I'm going to throw in the towel. The people that control our monetary system and our system of debt are all of Rothschild's people. They now have us wrapped around their little pinky. And our military, which is their primary target, continues to be exclusively theirs. Now, they can push these levers to control our, our military to a point, and I watch this. And um, there are some anomalous things happening which I don't understand. Iran is who Netanyahu, the dirtball that he is, would like to see incinerated, along with the rest of those Zionist peckerheads over there. They would like to see Iran taken out because Iran, per, per, uh, uh, Iran is the primary threat to Israel. We've taken Iraq out. The rest of them are all little players. The Arab Spring was all engineered. It was wonderfully engineered, actually. And it's still a wild card. No one knows what's going to happen. These 12 people who were killed in Paris yesterday is a result of 9-11 and the false flag attack. Everybody can jump up and down and say, I hate these Muslims. They're animals. I agree. That's the sickest goddamn religion I've ever seen in my life. And it should be a goddamn religion. It's not. It should not be recognized as a religion. But it doesn't vindicate the people who set this country's military against the Muslim nations of the world. Benjamin Friedman, who was a Jew who abandoned these bastards back in the early 1930s, he became a Catholic. In one of his speeches, he spoke in the 1960s, 70s. He said it. He said, one of Zionism's main goals is to pit the East against the West. And he clarified it. He said Christianity against Islam. He said it. He said it in his speech in the 1960s, early 70s. And he says, they've been unable to do it. He says, as hard as they try, they've been unable to do it. Well, 9-11 was one of the goals, was to pit Christianity against Islam. They're the two biggest faiths in the world. We both have 1.7, billion each. And if you look at the world as having $6 billion, we've already got $4 billion tied up. These Jews, the, in fact, the Jews, all of the Jews comprise less than 25% of 1% of the world's population. 
and they manipulate the rest of us like a rancher manipulates his herd. We are goy. We are cattle. They can do so much with the smallest thing that they do. We jump left. We jump right. We jump up. We jump down. And we haven't got a clue about who's pricking who with the pin and who who's going to get hit next with the bat. We just don't know because we don't look at the world the right way. We're typically, typically looking at the world that's within our own sphere of influence, which is where I started this whole thing tonight. We're specs. All we are is we're specs. We got to go make money to pay the mortgage. We got to go make money to get the car payments taken care of. And all of the salaries and all of the monies that we earn and a good deal of the utility bills and our necessities, all of those numbers are controlled so that there's very little left over for the average working person, which gives them very little time to think about this stuff that you and I have been. Well, I've been talking about and you've been listening to all this past two hours. So I don't know what the solution is other than educating our Congress and our government people. And I still come back and say one of my goals is to eliminate or eradicate anti-Semitism. Because if we can take the camouflage that hides these people, if we can take that camouflage and get rid of it, we will expose them for what they are. We need the good Jews out there that are many. They're, they're numerous to begin to sit up and say, this has got to stop. And I've had conversations with Jews where they say this. We know about the Rothschilds. We understand. And when you track it close enough, you find out that Rothschild funded Hitler. Hitler was an ideal candidate to fund because they wanted such a split in the world, and they got it. And they knew the American military would come eventually to the aid of Europe. So millions of people who die in these wars, these people that work in the Rothschild environment, they don't care about life. They, they do not care a bit about life. They are shaping the future of the world. And you and I don't count at all. And we've got to stop it. So I don't know if what I've given you here, Fred, relative to um, how the banking system has been restored and how it was bank- bankrupt at one time. I don't know if that makes sense to you. I hope it does. Hey, hey Patrick, before uh, we close out the hour, uh, the two hours, thank you so much. Uh, I know there's a few questions hanging out there in the balance to just to kind of put closure to this call. Would anyone like to pose a question to Pat Riot uh, before we close out the two hours real quick? Star six, there's a lot of callers, Fred. <laughs> Okay. I, w- I was curious Say about Benjamin, Benjamin Fulford. I get his stuff from so many people, and I know that it's yeah. somewhat right, but really very wrong. <laughs> so that would be my I, question. I, I, can't, I, I can't figure him out totally, but my bottom line is my street sense, my street smarts, however I want to call it, because I'm not an educated man, uh, my street sense says it's full of shit. Plain and simple, yeah. he's just full of shit. Yeah. 
I agree. I have an off-world source of information that says the same thing, that he's well-intended, but he doesn't have it figured out. He's kind of well, fooling people. I'm not even sh- I'm not sure he's even well-intended. I think he's yeah. got an ego like we all have, and I'd say there's probably, it's a 50-50 that he's being used and being well-intended, or he is, in fact, a willing participant in being used. In in either case, he's a waste of skin. I hate to be so pejorative, but in either case, he's a waste of skin. And if he was on this call, I'd be calling him that. And I wouldn't want to argue with him. I would just say, yeah. you know, you guys, you, you're caught up with a group of people. You have no idea what you're doing. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of tired of people throwing it at me. But enough of that. I wanted to leave some more room for everybody else to ask their questions. And now, Fred, if you have to go at the top of the hour and there's still people wanting to address Patrick, um, I could stay here with them. Um, But anybody else? Questions for Patrick? Got a lot of callers. Hmm. Gosh, everybody's so quiet. (laughs) Hmm. That's scary. Yeah, that is <laughs> maybe maybe they're all Jewish. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, I think that they they just they're so well informed, and you you're so articulate about what you share. It's probably more like it. Yeah, I, th- I think Patrick. I, this is Steve. I'd just like to say uh, an excellent excellent uh, analogy and and painting the picture of of actually what what is going on to Putin. And I think people are scratching their heads saying. How does this happen with gas? But you did a very, very good uh, description of that, and, and I really appreciate that. That's an excellent, excellent description of that. Uh, I think uh, uh, Dr. Sam Cross is uh, unmuted, so I'll, I'll yield to him. Yeah, uh, I have about three things. I, th- I think uh, the Jews, the Jew, well, I'm going to call them the Jews, not the Zionists, the Jews. The, uh, well, you call the Zionists Talmudic Jews. But I, they capitalize on three things, two things. Anti-Semitism. They play this anti-Semitism card. You know, you criticize Israel, you criticize the Jews, and you're an anti-Semite. And the people are afraid of that. You know, most Americans, they just, uh, they're fearful of that. Number two is they capitalize on the fake Holocaust. You know, only 500,000 Jews died in the Holocaust. Uh there were concentration your, camps. Let me, ask you, camps. let me ask you before you go further. What, what's your what's your first name? Sam. 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 Okay. Sam. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So they capitalize on anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, and you know they control the me- media. So they put out this propaganda, and the Americans fall for it because they're not. They're basically the the most Americans are ignorant, and illiterate. You mentioned Rothschilds, and they don't even know who the Rothschilds are. They don't know who the Federal Reserve, what the Federal Reserve is, that they control the money. You know, Rothschilds, like you said, whoever controls the money, I don't care who you, who you elect, I control the money and I'll control the country. And so I think they capitalize on anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. Well, that's they, true. They, they do. Yeah. yeah. The Holocaust is real. Uh, contrary yeah. to how a lot of folks want to say, uh, yeah, but literally millions of Jews were killed. But no, I don't think uh, six million didn't uh, die in the Holocaust. Well, let, let me let me finish the comment. Well, millions of Jews were killed. I I I think we all have our own opinions because there's so much conflicting and contrary uh, discussion and evidence out there. 
I believe millions of Jews were killed, but I'm going to give you a different slant on it. In order for Israel to come into existence, Zionism had to be the dominant force. Now, there's a term in our society, and the term is secular humanism. It's a nice multi-syllabic-sounding word, educated word, sounds almost like college. Secular humanism. 90% of the Jews today are secular humanists. Well, what the freak is a secular humanist? He's an atheist. He's an atheist that's not bound up with the future of heaven or the downside of hell. He's an atheist. Oh, no, he's a secular humanist. Whatever you want to call it, secular humanism is equivalent to atheism. 90, 85, 92, 93% of the Jews in the world today are secular humanists. And when you get in a heart-to-heart and a face-to-face discussion, they'll sheepishly look at you and say, no, I don't practice, I don't believe. Okay, does that make them bad? No, it doesn't. But what Rothschild needed in the 1940s in order to initiate and build the state of Israel he didn't need a bunch of religious fanatics reading, following, and believing in the Torah. He needed Talmudic Jews, who were essentially Pharisees. He needed Talmudic Jew because he was a practical Jew. He didn't necessarily, didn't necessarily not, he didn't necessarily believe in God, and he more than likely didn't believe in God. He believed in the power of man to solve the problems of man. That's what Talmud's all about. I mean, people can tell you a lot of things about the Talmud. I've got my street sense about it. doesn't mean I'm 100% right, but the Talmud is not the document or the book that's believed by the religious Jews. If you go back into the 1940s, you only had about 400,000 Jews in Germany. You didn't have many Jews. They'd gone in. They were creative people. They went into the arts. They went into finance and manufacturing. Now, I'm going to move to Poland in a second. But before I do, I want to make a point. Everybody on this call, however many there are of you, understand the word refugee. Every one of you understand the word invader. When we, well, when Hitler went from country to country, they invaded Poland, they invaded France. They invaded the nations of Europe. When we landed at Normandy, we invaded Europe. We left Britain and we invaded Europe that day. We landed and we were now full bore invasion. That was the invasion. Everybody had a uniform, a helmet, guns, weapons, medics, supply lines, food, tents. We had all of the necessary trappings to invade and do the job. The same as Russia does or or Hitler did, wherever they were, they were invading. In 1917, there was a Russian revolution where the Bolsheviks took over. All the Jews were Bolsheviks. All Bolsheviks weren't necessarily Jews, but all the Jews were Bolsheviks. And they believed that they were taking Russia for their own. They all were in Russia. They were taking Russia. And once Stalin took over, and once the whole movement started to twist a little bit, 1920, Hundreds of thousands of Jews crossed the border into Germany. 
refugees. No. No. They invaded Germany. But they came as civilians. They were poor. They were impoverished. They invaded Germany. Now, if you had 50 or 100,000 Jews that came across the border, how many were invaders and how many were refugees? doesn't make any difference. They were invaders. And within the group that came across that border were the people who set up the banking system, who set up manufacturing, who went into science. And this was in 1920. This was after, after the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the First World War. And they went in to Germany. And Germany opened their borders and took them in wholeheartedly, not realizing they were being invaded. So when you talk about the Jews this or the Jews that or any of us, you've got two groups in there. You've got, you've got a group that they may know about things, but they're not participants. And then you've got a small core of the group that are very aggressively planned. They have a whole documented plan that they're going to follow. But Germany had only a couple of hundred thousand Jews during the war. And those Jews were mostly secular humanists. If Rothschild was going to build his own nation so he could have his own military, he could have his own secret police or paramilitary like the Mossad, he had to take over some nation which wound up being Palestine. But in populating Palestine, he had to make sure he didn't bring in the religious Jew because he was going to screw the country up. So he needed religious Jews. They had to be there. They have to be the curtain in the front so that at least everybody says, well, you know, it's a, it's a home for the Jewish people. Well, the Jewish people don't exist. There is no such thing as the Jewish people. Shlomo Sand, a tenured professor of history at Tel Aviv University, in English, released in 2008, the, the invention of the Jewish people gives it away essentially gives away, save my ass, because up until then, I'm running around with this knowledge, but not being able to prove a damn bit of it. And this man comes along and gives me a gift. And he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ, who was a Hebrew, who died a Hebrew, who rose from the grave as a Hebrew, was never a Jew. The Jews didn't come around until 400, 450 A.D., and they're all coming around in Russia. So the Russian Revolution sent them on their way, and they had a chance to invade Germany and get into another military-oriented situation. But they needed money to build it. And we, we sent, I think we sent 250 or 450 million over to... Um, um, Oh, I forget who the hell it was. I think that we sent it into Russia, and um, I think we sent it into the Bushes helped get money in for uh, Hitler. But at any rate, all of it was based upon money, which was really debt, because every time the dollar was printed, we were creating more debt. And Rothschild was in the back of the whole thing with his army. He's a warrior. He's a brilliant warrior. The family are a family of brilliant warriors. But they were building this nation. They needed Israel to come into existence. And they needed to make sure that the secular humanists dominated the population. Because if the, 
If the population were dominated by the religious Jew that believed in the Torah, Israel would never mature to the monstrosity that it is today. They wouldn't be able to control it. So there were millions of Jews in Poland. They were poor. But they believed in the Torah. They were religious Jews. Those concentration camps and the murder of the Jews was as much Rothschild's architecture as anybody's. Look up the term transit papers. They went to the Jews in Germany and they said, look, we're building this country. They did this before Kristallnacht, the night that they tore down the stores and broke in the windows. They went to the wealthy. They went to the bankers. They went to everybody that was in power that was Jewish. And they said, we've got this place and we need you. You're industrious. You have wealth. Bring it. We need to populate and build this thing, Israel. We're going to make a home for the Jewish people. I think they laughed even when they said that. They weren't building a home for the Jewish people. They were building a home for Rothschild's ambitions, for a force, a paramilitary force that could set out throughout the world and destabilize nations and military systems. That's all Israel is. That's all it is. So they spent the time leading up to uh, concentration camps in Germany. They actually were involved with Hitler's war machine. They were in his office. They went to the bankers and the manufacturers, and they said, come. The bankers and the manufacturers looked, and they said, what are you out of your effing mind? I have a Picasso up here on the wall, or I have a Rembrandt, or whatever was big at the time. So I, I, I have my kids who are in the finest schools in the world. I own a factory. Do you know how precise the equipment is that I manufacture, and I ship it all over the world, and they love it, and I make a profit on it? I'm educated. My children are going to go to the best schools. My daughter wants to become a scientist where women just don't usually prevail. And she's going to become a scientist here in Berlin. Get out of my house, you nutcase. You want me to go live with a bunch of, bunch of goddamn camels? You're out of your mind. I'm not going to do that. So what happened after that is you had Kristallnacht and you had the pogroms. You had Hitler methodically motivated to isolate the Jews. And they began to get isolated, and they had their Rembrandts taken away, and they had their homes trashed, and they're living in the streets, and they're living in the, the ghettos. This all happened within about four or five months. That's what's not understood here. That can happen here. It's in the process of happening here right now. Right now, these bastards have got FEMA camps. They've got Homeland Security. They've got Americans turning against Americans. That's on board right now. That's happening right now. And it can happen literally over four or five months' time. And it did, but for different reasons here than it happened in Germany. They're not looking to populate Israel with Americans that will be thrown into camps. We'll be thrown into camps because we speak like I do or think like you do. That's what will happen here unless we stop this trash, this stuff. So the Zionists went from camp to camp to camp to camp and said, hey, Hey, remember I was at your house about four months ago. Remember the Rembrandt you showed me in a wall? Where's your Rembrandt? Out there by the toilet on the street? Where, where, where are you keeping? Where are your kids going to go to school now? So, in 1937 or 38, whenever this happened, Abe was given a second chance. And he says, I can get you over to 
Palestine and I can get your kids out safe transit. I can get the papers signed. Would you like to go? That was the reason for the um, ostracization of the Jewish population at the outset of the Second War. And those Jews that were religious in orientation were never given a chance. And the millions of those Jews populated Poland, not Germany, because they didn't want the religious Jew. It was a concerted effort to abandon the religious Jew, to kill the religious Jew. And they would serve a purpose going forward that we call the Holocaust industry. I don't think that had been planned out as we now know it to be, but it evolved into what it is. And they died mostly of dysentery and starvation and disease. They didn't get gassed, but they did die. Millions of them did die. And they were killed by Rothschild. They were, they okay. were killed by their own people. And no one has written a book. You've got to go to the website Zionists, uh, Jews Against Zionism, and you've got to find the titles to the books that they have and then see if you can get the books. Um, and they will tell you from the authorities at the time, this book, these books have been suppressed like you can't believe. But these poor Jews are looked at as whack jobs. I mean, they've got the curls coming down, they're orthodox, and you've got Brother Nathaniel out here telling you, well, all Jews are bad because anti-Semitism works to the benefit of these people. I still don't know about Brother Nathaniel. There's things he says that are interesting. But I think what he's out there is to create a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism, which creates a backlash in favor of the people I am talking about. Because yeah, we had him on our... I know we you had did. him on our I was on that. call. Yeah, right. <laughs> we have one more I'm question, on too, that, from Jay Bird while you're still on when you're done okay, with that one. Ahead. Jay, do you have a question? Uh, I was just saying that... Am I, can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, I can, Jay. I was just thinking that, once again, this needs to be put to video with graphics. Say that again? This needs to be put to video with graphics. With oh, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. 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 Well, it, relative it, to that, I, I sent a 56-page PDF file to Fred this evening. And anybody that likes it that's here, send Fred an email and he'll forward it to you. Fred, you listening? Yep, He's gone. yep, yep. Oh, okay. Um, I sent you a 56-pager. I sent it to Rudy Dent. He's on the fire department in New York, and he's, he works with the architects uh, for 9-11 Truth, A&E for 9-11 Truth. Um, and at the 56 pages is part of a 116-page preview of the 260 or 80-page book that's coming out. So these 56 pages will give you some insight to some of the subject matter. And I, I give you the authority to send it to anybody that wants it, Fred. Sounds good. Uh, guys, you know my email. It's it's on it's on the email list. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a great call, Fred. Patrick, uh, 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 Sam again. I, I got two two things to bring up. Number one is 
Uh, Israel and the Jews car will not exist except because of America. You know, Truman, he created sure. Israel. No, but the yep. point I'm bringing up, Israel, the Jews, I'm, I'm going to use the word Jews. Now, I know all Jews aren't bad because there's Alfred Lilienthal out there, and there's several rabbis. They speak against Israel, and there's a Jewish voice of, for peace against Israel and the right. other ones. But what I'm bringing out is the, the Jews in this country, they control the military, the media, and the money. And Absolutely. Israel would not exist except for America backing them up. Now, Rand Paul, he's running for president. He already came out against that he wants to cut out that $400 million that the United States gives to the Palestinians. He's already been over to Israel to get his marching orders from Israel. Number two, Ben Carson, the black neurosurgeon, he's already been over to Israel, and he says Israel's a great country, and he's running for president. And I'm saying right now that uh, they already have the next president picked they know who's going to be the next president, so no use even voting because they already got the next president picked. Well, so could you comment tell on you, that? Your name is Sam, right? Sam. Huh? Yeah. So your name is Sam, right? Okay. Right. Sam, you, you're really you're right on the money up to a point, and I'm going to say a second time, you're right on the money up to a point. Um, one of the things I've determined over the past years. It's very frustrating because of what you've just said is accurate. Uh, anybody that steps to the plate looks like they have some future power. It could be a, a Sammy Davis Jr. who did become a Jew, or it could be Rand Paul will be off to Israel. Well, they don't go to Israel. They get summoned to Israel, and they have to go. Right. Um, they go, and then they're told, and, and I'm going to create an illusion here for you. They're told in a nice way what's going to happen for them, and they're going to get the support, and we see this, and we like what you've done here. They, the Jews in this category work great with vanity. I mean, everybody loves to be stroked, everybody, men and women, men actually more than women. Women just like to be told when the hair looks, oh, my God, your hair looks wonderful that way. I love that. And you've lost some weight, haven't you? Men, you know, God, you did a great job with that project last year, Billy. And, you know, we, our vanity is appealed to by a different way. Um, but we get summoned to Israel, our leaders. Their vanity is appealed to. And now I'm going to say something that may seem a little way out, but they're given an opportunity to pander to their lust. The men are. Whether it's there in Israel or here in a dumpy hotel in Oklahoma or a nice hotel in Washington, D.C. And they're photographed and it's cataloged and it's filed away. That's with your judges. That's with your congresspeople. That's with students after sophomore year in the Ivy League schools. That's how well organized these these guys are. They call it a Panama. In the early 1920s and before, a congressman wanted to cheat on his wife and do things outside the view of wherever he was. He went to Panama. He didn't take a plane. He got a train. He went to Panama for a week or 10-day vacation. Panama was a destination for indiscretions. And in going to Panama, it was always known by somebody that he was going to Panama for something he shouldn't be doing at home. So Rothschild had people in Panama photographing and getting all the evidence that would eventually be used 
for a key decision in the court, for a key act in Congress to be passed or signed or voted for. They call them Panamas. It's blackmail. So when our leadership goes to Israel, there's a whole bunch of other things taking place aside from the appealing to the vanity. They will, like Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani was singularly responsible for all of the debris the day the buildings came down to be removed and put on barges and sent off to China within a week. However quickly they could get that stuff out of there so there'd be no residue and no sampling and no visible cut columns. Giuliani made those arrangements. That was in 9-11. In February of 2002, Giuliani was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. There is a connection, and it's got nothing to do with Mr. Giuliani's appearance of being a great man. Giuliani is owned. So, yeah, they're summoned to Israel. They're told what's going to happen for them, and then things are expected of them. And if, while they're there, they can be seduced by this, that, or other indiscretion, that'll be cataloged, as well as it's being cataloged here. But if they're a promising student from junior year in, in college and the Ivy's on, they're also cataloged and filed. That's how thorough these people are. I guarantee you, you can go into some hotel or two hotels in Washington, D.C. that nobody knows about and see a Cecil B. DeMille production room set up behind the walls in a dozen of the rooms in a given hotel. Never heard. Silent operation. And they know the minute that somebody's made a move on somebody in a bar and the hotel is chosen and a room is given and the rest is history. That's yeah. how bad it is. That's how yeah. much they own us. We are at the front pulling the levers and the decisions and looking like we're the ones making the decisions. They're all being made by somebody else. All of this information needs to be out there so some of the people who are being blackmailed can step up and say it's got to stop and I'll be the one to stop it. And a lot of it's being done to our judges as well. That's why we've heard these stories in our courtrooms. Don't you dare say our Constitution again or I'll hold you in contempt of court. Now, how idiotic a statement could that be for a judge to make? Yet, Fred, you know, those are statements that are made, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I guess you... Hey, I guys, we're, we're going to have to close off the, the, the questions of... Uh, I'm on a three-way with Patrick right now, so. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. I, <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't late, get off the call. Late. <laughs> kind of late for you, Fred. Yeah, but anyway, it's been a great call, guys. Uh, it's still freezing uh, like crazy up here in, in Chicago, but uh, Pat, thank you so much for man. As, my uh, as Jay said, uh, graphics and documentation. Just just this call tonight uh, wove. Uh, some things from the past, but a lot of new material uh, was was brought in. Uh, uh, we really look forward to that. Uh, anyone uh, that that pamphlet, little teaser that uh, Patrick sent, I'd be more than happy to forward it on. Just send it to my email, fksmart at gmail dot com. The letter F, letter K, smart at gmail dot com. I'll, I'll be sure to forward it to you. Thanks, Fred. Thanks for staying Thank you, Patrick. (laughs) Jeannie, thanks. Steve, everyone else left on the call. We'll see you guys next week. And uh, uh, shout-out to Melinda Kula uh, on on that Facebook find. 
we will be following that story and, and, and supporting you as well going forward. Thanks, Patrick. Happy New Year, everyone. Take Good care. Night. Happy Thanks. New Year Thanks, to you, too. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye, Patrick, Patrick, I'll give you, give you a call you. soon. God bless. Bye-bye. A-U-N, American Underground Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.